Hi and welcome to The Pod Clothes. In today's program, we have Kendrick McDowell, the Artificial Intelligence Curator at Google Research's Artisan Machine Intelligence Program. This program aims to bring artists and engineers together and to promote collaborations between them and intelligent systems in art making. Kendrick oversees these cross collaborations between Google AI researchers, artists, and cultural institutions. Machine learning is the science of getting computers to act without being explicitly programmed, and it is having a growing impact on our everyday lives, from speech recognition to better understanding of the human genome or the first prototype of self-driving cars. But what is the influence these new forms of computing intelligence may exert on artists and their creative processes? Can it help us understand human creativity, or how does it work? These are some of the questions the work of Kendrick revolves around. He was in Barcelona last June speaking at Sonar Plus D as part of the Google AI Showcase. In his talk, Creativity Beyond Human Creativity, he presented the program and how artificial intelligent entities are not merely tools, but collaborators in the creative process changing the art of the future. After Sonar, Kenrick stopped in London for a few days and he kindly agreed to meet us. We were lucky to have a quick tour around the Google HQ. We talked to him about some of the different projects they are running, including a sort of a machine learning version of the classic Bitnik road trip, generating poetry on the fly from location data. Definitely. Our audience is definitely more specific. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of the projects that you see coming out of Google that are involved more creativity or like mm -hmm. technology are, are for technology are aimed at a mainstream audience, and so. We started because of Deep Dream coming out of AI research. And when um, the initial impulse behind the program was to create um, an art show using Deep Dream, and that was kind of like an idea that my director, Blaze, kind of threw out there and brought a few people to work together on. And because I was the um, only person in our like hundred person at the time, hundred person research team with an MFA, I felt really responsible for um, making sure that the engagement with contemporary art was meaningful in a in the broader sense um, and not just in a sort of like mass appeal kind of way you know I didn't want to sort mm -hmm. of dumb down what art was in that situation as you know so um, we ended up having an engagement with the cultural ecosystem and the art world that is much more on the terms of contemporary art rather than um, on the terms of like technology So trying to sort of respect both fields in the practice, in their current practice, and bring those together ultimately ends up meaning we do have a more specific audience, mm -hmm. and, we, and we're looking for a more um, in, uh, conversation that's parallel or at least engaged with the contemporary art conversation. My background is definitely in fine arts, but it's always been with some technology, uh, with the technological layer. So I came into um, my undergraduate studies with uh, experience in electronic music, And so because of that, I gravitated toward a program that was, well, I kind of synthesized a bunch of different programs to make my own degree, but the core of it was um, this conceptual intermedia art program at San Francisco State University taught by Stephen Wilson. And it was very much about intersection of art and technology um, um, for the artistic use, but um, I learned how to do interactive like development, so like making CD-ROMs, making online games and things like this. Um, and then I went into, um, I, I did an internship at a game development company and then went into game development for a while and then I worked in advertising, doing front-end development and um, did like UX and UI design and development for, you know, um, almost 20 years. So 
at the same time, I was doing fine art and got my MFA at photography at the International Center of Photography Bard and was engaged in that world and playing music too. I was also working to support myself as a um, in technology. So the um, the crossover maybe wasn't there because there one was sort of like a means to an end, but then they eventually, um, with this opportunity with Deep Dream and being in AI research, it sort of became inevitable that they would <laughs> that they would cross, and so um, so that led to my role, which is to uh, lead this program, which is called Artists and Machine Intelligence, um, inside of Google Research, and what we do is we bring artists in to work with. AI researchers, machine learning researchers, um, to develop projects that use AI and machine learning. So um, the program is pretty small. I am one of the only, well, I'm the only full-time person on it. We have a half-time engineer, Mike Taika, who's done a lot of the deep dream work and he's done a lot of our collaborations. We also have other 20% engineers and um, 20% people that help consistently on um, running the program, doing social media, helping plan and publish and things like this. How many artists do you do you, are you, do you have in the program at the moment? Um, so for this year, we'll do four collaborations. Mm -hmm. And they're not... Um, they're, we chose this year to focus on artists that had um, an established technical expertise within their studio. So like we're working with Addie Wagenek, she's the one one of the artists we're currently working with. I think a bunch of Zell from UCLA Ideas. Both of them have like Addie has a um, a technical, I guess fabricator you might say, um, <laughs> as a software developer engineer. Um, and then and then Gavanch has a whole architecture studio um, at UCLA. So both of them, partly because of um, constraints around like individuals going on paternity leave and things like this, we had to sort of focus our efforts there. Uh, at the same time, we've also been looking at, um, we've been doing more publishing. Um, and I guess, you know, we did a project with Ross Goodwin, so that's another artist that we worked with this year, but that was also very kind of of the most, like spontaneous and ad hoc to a certain extent. Um, but yeah, that, I want to ask you about that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, in a certain sense, because of some, like unexpected budgetary constraints and people's time constraints, we ended up kind of just picking a few artists that we could just support financially and with like infrastructure. Um, like we still give them like cloud credits and we help them with um, with publicizing the work and stuff. But also um, it enabled us to focus a little bit more on some of the cultural research we want to do around mm -hmm. machine learning and urbanism and other areas where we had some opportunities. So. I think we'll be back into collaboration mode towards the end of the year where we're doing more production. So like the project with Rafiq Anadol, Mike Taika did a bunch of work on that. He's, uh, we have another artist that we're working with. I'm really excited, but I can't say what her name is yet, but um, he'll probably be working with her in the fall. Um, and while, while he's away, we've got other engineers that we can work with, but we'll, we're primarily focusing on the artists that have technical um, resources of their own. Mm -hmm. And um, how you select the artists? Is there a selection process or...? There's not a formal selection mm -hmm. process. It's mu has much more to do with our activities in the field and mm -hmm. who we encounter. Um, you know, so some of the artists we work with um, have been people that we've met at AI conferences or people that, you know, we've met like people that have attended our conferences mm -hmm. have come from um, either referrals from friends or people that whose art I saw and was just like, I need to talk to this person. Mm -hmm. um, Do you have like a submission also or not just... Like, there's no, no formal submission mm -hmm. process um, in that sense. I think uh, on a certain level, the 
there's a kind of differential between the expectation and the reality of what mm-hmm. we can provide. And so we have to be very careful about like how we engage because the expectation for any Google project is for there to be like so much money and resources. And actually it's really hard uh-huh. to get those things when you're not, you know, a product that makes money necessarily. So, um, we have to kind of, we've, we've, kept our cards very close to our chest so far and are trying to sort of like establish a very strong network of relationships before we try to open ourselves up to a bigger, you know, a bigger um, public approach to doing this. And is, is that you that like just do the research and just assess like a, the whole the, te- the whole team and, does, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, I came in with the most knowledge of contemporary art, um, but everyone involved has some and they have their own relationships and I'm, I'm certainly not the only person that's provided mm-hmm. artists yeah i mean the, i think the biggest challenge is the lack of a shared language between the two domains and there's so much knowledge to be acquired in order to work from one to the other whether you're talking about technical knowledge or even conceptual understanding of how the systems work to cultural contextual knowledge of like what art is and what role it plays and the exchange of that Uh knowledge is the most time-consuming aspect of it there's like there are artists now that we work with that are much better informed about the current state of machine learning and ai Mm -hmm. um, culturally and technically than there were a year ago so it goes to show that there's been some change within the field um, with on the art side as well Um, but i'd say another big part of that challenge is that the tech world and um, the business world don't really understand how art functions in its true, in its most honest expression Mm -hmm. in the contemporary art. So there's a lot of work to be done in helping those people understand why this is beneficial to them. Not, I mean, I think they do understand why that it is beneficial, but understanding exactly how and the deeper side of that rather than sort of like, well, PR is good and we'll reach new audiences and all that stuff is really easy to say. But what's more interesting is the broader conversation that's engendered by these collaborations mm-hmm. and the benefit that that can have to the whole research process. It's hard to necessarily communicate that right away. And yeah, another question would be like, um, uh, of all these, like the projects, I don't know, how, how many projects have you have you done already of have like see last year we did one two three four we've done like six Probably. or seven uh-huh. yeah which one was been like the um most surprising or like the 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 outcome has been the most surprising or i'm really excited about the new stuff we're doing uh-huh. because it's very the potential is really manifesting mm-hmm. in concrete ways like with the work with rafiq and i i'm looking forward to seeing what Addie and gavantra are going to do this year um, but I think the project that really was the most exciting to me so far has still been our work with this Bhutto dancer from Seattle named Kaoru Okumura. Uh-huh. And um, partly because it was really the furthest out. Like at that time, we didn't have, it wasn't as easy to find somebody who was like conversant in the in the tools. Mm-hmm. And so we were just trying whatever. And so we, and this, this dancer, um, Kaoru, had a very, different aesthetic because it comes from the world of Bhutto and to me the sort of broad historical scale that that Uh combines of Bhutto and and AI and the future and the past and the moment of Bhutto's birth and the aesthetic and ethos of Bhutto combined with the kind of opposite from AI that was really really Mm -hmm. interesting and um, that to me was one of the most rewarding just aesthetically dealing with the the bizarreness of that and the way that actually Bhutto 
could absorb the language of AI and the language of tech and the language mm-hmm. of Deep Dream without it being completely alien. In fact, like the weirder that stuff was, the more it made sense in the context of Butoh. And so that was really profound for me, the aesthetic um, flexibility of that that language and how it almost, in some ways, overpowered the the Deep Dream part. And I was also like quite surprised when you presented uh, Ross' project mm-hmm. that um, uh, with poetry, I don't know, I had the feeling it was re- it was really good. <laughs> I don't know, like it was like it's even better, like uh, even better than like uh, Breton, like the uh, <laughs> <laughs> surreal, surreal, of course. Yeah. But I was surprised, but really sur- surprised by uh, by that. I was like fascinated by the 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 output and also like the it's it's a little bit of like compositions like a Polinaire as well mm-hmm. uh, with the, with the shape i don't know like and how did project came up like what that so we've been working with ross for a while and um that's another project that was really cool because of what's his background sorry like so ross, ross was, yeah. um excuse me his background was actually as a speechwriter political speechwriter oh, yes. Mm-hmm. So he had worked mm-hmm. with Obama yeah. and John Kerry. And um, then he went to the, the ITP program at NYU um, and studied, you know, creative computation. And so he's been writing these machine learning systems that generate text from text and, um, you know, making these kind of poetic LSTMs. And, and so he had this idea to put... So we had actually been talking about going down to visit an, a fabricator that he's working with. So this guy's putting um, these computers inside of four by five cameras, mm-hmm. and then they print out poetry based on the image that comes into them. And so we were like, well, we wanted, you know, we wanted to like document him going to visit this guy. And he's like, well, you know, I really have wanted to do this project where I put a surveillance camera on the back of a car and generate poetry on the road. And you know, the reference points were all these kind of literary reference points. So. Um, you know, like on the road, mm-hmm. fear and loathing Las Vegas, electrical aid acid test. And so we we're like, well, why don't we go down and visit this guy? And on the way there, we'll do this project. And so that kind of just happened as a, and it was a pretty affordable project for us to fund because it was really just like rental cars mm-hmm. and some little bit of equipment. And um, yeah, and then so, so we went on, we did it for a couple of days. He generated 200,000 words of poetry. Um, you know, or, or poetry. Yeah, well. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and then you know we're working. We were talking to a publisher about ways of getting it published. Uh-huh. Um, so you know. oh, like like I was just like thinking about that. Like, what's what's the value of all this? All this art? How you, um, uh, how you say like not right or how, how, yeah? What how yeah. you? What kind of value you put on that? Or who yeah. who decides as well? Who's gonna decide what's like or like and how it's gonna compare with like human produced art? You know, to take the literary angle, right, you could sort of say, like, well, like, are William Burroughs cut-ups or is Breton's poetry, like, is it subject to the same critique because it uh, involves automated methods? You know, I think it's more, you know, what I found interesting in that piece and what I wrote about in the essay is, that I wrote about it, is the way that it engages and exposes the sort of infrastructure of machine perception and the resources that are available to a machine to sense the world. And when you look at what those resources are in the context of that particular piece, they happen to be um, the location, the geolocation, mm-hmm. the time, um, this this image that comes from a surveillance camera. So it's a certain type of coded way of looking mm-hmm. at the world. And um, the Foursquare data, which exposes like the commercial infrastructure surrounding the terrain that we move through. And in terms of the landscape, you know, if you think about 
there's there's certainly all these literary allusions to the project, but there's also landscape allusions and perception of landscape. So you could tie in like land art, or you could make it about um, urbanism or something like this, or or what it means to live in the country. But um, what I found interesting was the landscape that's visible to the machine is the commercial landscape of food distribution and synthetic food distribution. At that, right, we're talking about like freeways. And having been on the road as a musician in a touring band, my sort of the romance of the the road was a little bit lost at that point for me. So seeing kind of like Wendy's and McDonald's and Burger King flying by and having the machine write about it, like these tools embody or embed the values of the systems that they emerge from. And so they are fundamentally exposing those, whether you're critical or not Mm -hmm. is depending on the artist and depends on the viewer. But that is what I think is so relevant about these at this moment in time. And maybe, you know, in a hundred years, we'll look back and that's what we'll see rather than the novelty of any computational technique. And, um, um, what's the, the other one. Ah, yeah, I had like, it's a very naive question, maybe, mm-hmm. and it it goes related to the interpretation of of what like the the, the machine um, takes up. And I think it was, in, in, I haven't read that, 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 that much about it, but like the, the way like the algorithm works, like it identifies like from an image, like mm-hmm. textures and, mm-hmm. and the specific uh, uh, details. <clears throat> and it makes like, yeah, like extrapolate and it's like, this is a cat. Mm-hmm. And, of course, like usually when they when you ha- you try to make the reverse, sometimes mm-hmm. the images are quite like like yeah. funny. Yeah. Do you think um, this is like something like a, a a pixel problem? Like if if like the machines get more and more complex and they can ex- extract more mm-hmm. information from mm-hmm. images, yeah, I see what, what what they what they gonna return back is more defined, or they will they like the machines still they still gonna keep interpreting. Another yeah. thing. So there is a certain degree to which it is that, and there's a degree to which it's not. Mm-hmm. The degree to which it is is that if we have a bigger space to render the image, mm-hmm. meaning there's more memory in the GPU and a, there's more um, process, more uh, space to process it, um, we will get something a little bit more realistic because right now the techniques have such a small window that they need to sort of reiterate, and it produces a sort of fractal mm-hmm. fractalization. Um, but having said that there's also a fundamental aspect of it, which is that I think a simple way of describing it is that it's a statistical view of an image, you know? So like, just to illustrate briefly, like the way that they normally work is in these kind of layers, right? And the bottom layers will recognize like very simple features like a circle or a square, right? And then the middle layer will recognize like pairs. And then like the next level will recognize clusters of shapes. Right, so that might look like an eye. Mm-hmm. And then the, the next level up, let's make this, a, let's just be cute for a second. And then the next level would recognize like things like this, right? And then like the next would recognize like a face. So like you have sort of like, it's a statistical like degree of recognition. So um, in terms of, it's not very beautiful, unfortunately. But, <laughs> um, but the point is, like, it's a you you see like patterns. So like the ability to recognize like a cat will like partially be coming from the fact that there are eyes and a nose. But 
Yeah, so I mean, to put it simply, you don't have to see it exactly the way we see it. You just has to be statistically close enough to what we uh-huh. would recognize. And mm-hmm. so a lot of what you're seeing in terms of output, yes, there is a degree that it's the rendering technique imposes some surreality to it, but also the process, the visual process itself um, does. Okay. Yeah. How do you think like virtual reality and, and artificial intelligence or machine learning um, will change or are changing the, the human bef- behavior in this in this information era? I think the most pressing concern about the way AI changes behavior, well, not the most pressing, but let's just say, um, well, okay, I think the most pressing is that it makes behavior opaque in the sense that it makes the behavior of structural systems opaque. Um, it may, So it's harder to know why things are the way they are, which I think is extremely dangerous. It masks power, essentially, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think another concern I have about... Um, Another concern I have about human, maybe mental models Mm -hmm. that comes from AI is that when we anthropomorphize AI, we're giving a lot of human qualities to something that's extremely crude compared to the human cognitive and consciousness generating system. Mm -hmm. So um, we risk simplifying what we ourselves are in the process of identifying with or identifying these systems with ourselves. So to be extremely careful when we get into the conversation around anthropology. I think it's something to be careful of as we're in the process of formulating our metaphors and formulating our language about these things. The behavior that I'm more concerned with is the modeling behavior that humans have. Not so much like um, that it's like social media clearly changes our behavior. I don't think we've hit a point where AI is quite yet doing that, but mm-hmm. you can see that it's masking structural forms of power and it's also changing our mental model of ourselves and, and it can be extremely reductive. So we've already adopted a lot of computer metaphors for mm-hmm. our own thinking. And I think if we are to continue doing that with AI, we need to, we should stop. <laughs> we shouldn't continue doing that um, because the AI models that we have are really crude. I mean, the, basically... This structure that you see here is the is the typical structure in a neural net, and this mm-hmm. is supposed to be a model of a human neuron. And a human neuron responds to all different kinds of receptors. Yeah. It responds to all different kinds of chemicals, and let alone mapping the you know that's that's without mapping the emergent properties mm-hmm. of this complex system. So, to sort of like graft ourselves into this and say that that's all that we are is really dangerous. And mm-hmm. that's the language that I'm seeing in a lot of the anthropomorphizing articles around. AI. So we need to, that's the behavior I'm really more concerned about is the narrativizing behavior that we're engaged in at this exact moment. What do you think of, um, of the comments as like, or the, or the fear of, of like really renowned scientists, physicists like mm-hmm. Stephen Hawking and, and some others have, have expressed a, a very profound concern about artificial intelligence being a little mm-hmm. bit like, like dramatic, but yeah. it's like, if, if like, if these people are like, are just saying this, like, wow, like, uh, what do you think with you, like yeah. working on a more like kind aspect of it, which is mm-hmm. art, but like, uh, what? Yeah, I mean, there's again, it comes back to narrative, and mm-hmm. it comes back, it comes back to the opacity of power, because I think if you're talking about like very um, established, you know, white male scientists putting out this narrative of like this big scary robot in the sky that's going to kill us, and you're not looking at how AI makes 
systems of control opaque, then you're kind of missing the actual threat that's on the in the present moment and on the horizon. So even just to sort of speak to, um, there's recently a company, I think it was an Israeli company that published a software package to do, to, oh no, it was a Chinese company that published a software package to recognize criminals. And so it was a sort of modern form of phrenology using machine learning. And the fact that machine learning is a sort of black box, it's very uh, mysterious and its processes can't easily be visualized, um, makes it possible for somebody to make, to make a claim like that. So, you know, I am a little suspicious of people invested positions of power who put out a narrative, that, a frightening narrative around AI without, without exposing sort of the more immediate problem, t- you know, mm-hmm. political and implementation concerns that, that are, not- that are making things less transparent. Mm-hmm. I've read like recently, like, uh, and that's, and that refers to boots, uh, boots mm-hmm. and Facebook, I think something happened and they were like trying to establish communication between two bots mm-hmm. and then they generated yeah, their, own. A new, their own language. Mm-hmm. How, how you uh, take, uh, take this, is it, is it, is it in, in, interesting as a, as like a, as a, also like a, an artistic or like point of view or like taking this, yeah. these, these um, projects that, yeah. that were like, like Ross's projects uh-huh. that, that like have more to do with language. How? Yeah, I uh, think it's totally interesting. It's, um, I, I am interested in the, you know, as you saw in the lecture, the notion of multidimensionality and its relationship with language. So the idea of like emergent languages that um, directly map highly multidimensional spaces between each other is without okay. translation down into sort of like language we can understand mm-hmm. is, is really interesting to me. Yeah. So something that you would like, would like to like investigate or like push yeah, the yeah, yeah, sure, uh-huh. definitely. And well, these links uh with like almost like the, the last three, well, we're on the last three questions. Uh-huh. Um, what di- directions do you see taking your research interest, interest into? Right now we're looking at um, collaborations we can do with people that work in urban planning and architecture and um, basically um, what, you know, what we're kind of calling AI urbanism or just like how AI intersects with the cultural fabric in urban and rural spaces. So we're looking more at kind of like large scale infrastructural um, intersections and what that means culturally. Um, I, unfortunately, I can't talk about any of the projects we're doing yet because we don't have like contracts signed, but um, that I'm pretty excited about them. Um, the other thing that I'm kind of seeing on my horizon that touches that is um, an interest in just mapping the coordinates of an emerging global culture, global high-tech culture. So, you know, there are certain languages that are needing to be developed in order to talk about the intersection of art and technology, and there are certain languages that are needing to be developed to talk about um, power and politics, and there's, you know, and the internet, and there's languages that need to be developed to um, talk about how all these intersect. And so one thing I took away from Sonar was just that the idea of taking like, you know, certain global phenomena like dance, music, culture, and then mapping um, like design, technology, business, and creativity like on top of that, that was a really interesting synthesis to me. And it pointed to um, ways that we might formulate paradigms that are inclusive of all the different kind of worldviews and modalities that exist on earth and still help us understand like where we are as a, as a sort of newly awakened global culture. That to me is kind of what the, the level of complexity that AI embodies is similar to that. And the, the mental models we need to think through that, I think yeah. might exist somewhere in mm-hmm. AI space also. 
Yeah, I think like very challenging times for for like well like intellectuals and uh, our heads and also like people who like just, well as you say like politics, cognition, mm-hmm. psychology and then it's it as you say like it englobes the whole like um, uh, cultural aspect of like humanity. Really interesting book about horror and architecture. Uh huh. And they talk about. The sort of some of the architectural horrors that are kind of called out are things that happened from like the beginning of modernity. Mm-hmm. So like things like, but the idea of like scaling up, um, like if you take a sort of existing form mm-hmm. and scale it to meet the needs of like a larger body, it doesn't actually it- work. It's kind of horrific and weird, right? And so like there's another example um, of this house. Well, it's like a little bit of like biological systems that they have different systems have a reason within a, 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 a size. But uh-huh. if you take this out of that, it's like it doesn't, it, it cannot sustain itself or it doesn't work. Right, like, like, like if for, you made an ant really huge, it wouldn't be able to live. Uh-huh. Yeah, for any different, any reason, yeah. maybe it's aesthetic or, yeah. or like, or more like the, the whole system. But, yeah. oh, it's, uh, but the idea that we might be on the verge of like a new, like the, the similar shift from the 19th to the 20th century where you have like modernism emerging mm-hmm. and there's new architectural needs that are expressed in the form that these things take that doesn't work if you just adapt the old thing uh-huh. to it. It's in this, we're mm-hmm. in a similar space right mm-hmm. now, you know. And I think the thinking that we have to do embraces complexity and is like inherently multidimensional. So I see those things in, uh, I mean, I see those things in lots of fields, but I see them especially in AI. I think in in the realm of like consciousness studies or sort of re-engaging with like practices that help expand our consciousness, we're seeing also that interest globally and that that need to embrace a sort of complex state of mind mm-hmm. pairs very well. The last two questions, which are like the, the Prostian ones that we always <laughs> do. <laughs> uh, so what, what would be your chief enemy of create creativity? More, more personal or more just like gover- no governmental, but like red tape? I think the, the, chief, the chief enemy, like just on a very personal level and I think more f- structurally is um, the foreclosure of possibility. Uh. When I'm like, for example, in a conversation with somebody, if I'm like putting something out there and they're not, and they're sort of like, there's an improvisation technique of yes and, right? Where you sort of, you never deny the other person what they have put forth. I mean, yeah. certainly critique is valuable, but the creative process needs to be one of generation. And so anytime I'm in a um, conversation or in a situation where, I've, where, you know, what I'm putting down or someone else is putting down is immediately foreclosed, like I get physically so frustrated and there's no sort of like velocity mm-hmm. there, and so that's that's definitely part of it. Yeah, it actually, it actually I never thought it as as that, but it's very it's very frustrating. I didn't identify it as like as as such as a, as something, right? <laughs> <laughs> but it's true. It's like oh my god, there's some conversations that everything is just like okay, one you try different, no, and, like and it doesn't go anywhere, and it doesn't go anywhere. It's like how is possible? Because some some other times it's like yeah. it's just a fluent. Well, and this is what I've I've been through, you know, enough years of sort of working in corporate culture now that I'm trying to establish a pattern where every single meeting I have, I leave with inspiration instead of like feeling that my energy is being yeah. thrown into a hole. You know, have you developed a technique to overcome? <laughs> I, I mean, you have to be extremely discerning about who you. Things, yeah. everything starts really small, right? Mm-hmm. Everything starts with like a word or a conversation and then spirals into something bigger. And so you, I try to discern as quickly as possible the relative openness of a participant mm-hmm. to, to, to these lines of, you know, experimentation. Yeah. 
And last, um, if you could tell us what you you couldn't live without. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, plants. I can't live without plants. It's <laughs> a nice one. Yeah. yeah. Plants and music. Mm -hmm. yeah. I like that. No, yeah, I wanted to ask you that. Um, have you used uh, artificial intelligence or machine learning for your production? For my own music? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I haven't. Uh -huh. Yeah, I haven't used like any of Magenta's tools. Um, <laughs> And I think it's partly just been like a timing thing. I think that's, I probably should, but at the same time, I'm also, I have used, I guess maybe it's unfair to say, but I've used more of a traditional um, sequencing approach to mm -hmm. generativity. So like if you take like, it's a very simple technique that even like came from like, you know, like it's in West African music that influenced Steve Reich. Um, and so it's in yeah. sort of Western classical music from that angle, but um, it's sort of taking like sequences of, of different lengths and correlating them to different properties within mm -hmm. a system. And so you can generate sequences that are extremely interesting and have this sort of underlying mathematics to them that don't use actual machine learning. So um, in a certain sense, I've had a generative a relationship with generative <laughs> techniques, but not specifically with ML. Yeah. What do you think about it? It's like we, we, cl we close our review from Sonar yeah. uh -huh. uh, referencing, well, re referencing that, like the... Uh, The Nick Bo like the Nick Bostrom uh, uh, theory, or like the, the that simulation. We're, that we're yeah. living in a simulation. Yeah. So yeah, are we are. <laughs> well, I mean, clearly we're living in a simulation. It's so obvious. Isn't it? <laughs> um, I mean, I don't. And find... some someone is very bored and <laughs> <laughs> pushing so, buttons. Yeah. <laughs> I don't. I don't find anything. Um, I mean, I think, okay, so the idea that we're living in like a simulation that's running on a computer, like even, okay, sure, that squares with physics, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, even our own brains are like simulating reality, yeah. right? Like we're, uh, that has to, like even our like uh, neural perception, right? It's like there's feed forward networks in the mm -hmm. eyes that look for forms and you see things and then they're not actually there and, and stuff like that. So certain, certainly we ourselves are simulators, but um, I don't find it um, in conflict with any of the sort of like, Eastern or Western philosophy mm -hmm. that I've studied or prescribed <laughs> to, you know, I mean, the idea that, um, the idea of like cosmic play or Leela yeah. as a, as a sort of simulation or ephemerality of, of, I mean, matter is just constantly transmuting from one thing to another. So, you know, yeah. yeah sure. And in the end, you just like, just, just, just leave, keep leaving. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I guess the other question is what would you do differently if you yeah, found out you yeah, were in a simulation? A, which is... It's a little bit like, I don't know, like reductive, but it's just, well. <laughs> I mean, do you think yeah. we're living in a simulation? Uh, I don't think so. You don't think so? No, but I, don't, I couldn't, I've been thinking about the, about the, um, which, which would be my arguments. <laughs> uh -huh. Uh -huh. No, I don't think so. No, I'm not, I'm not sure. I, I, I don't have arguments to be sure about it again so far. Yeah. I guess it implies that there's like a bigger container. Mm-hmm. And then the question then is like, is that inside of a simulation yeah. also? And How I, far I think up and down do the simulations go? It's a kind of philosophical thinking that brings me what, what I call like philosophical anxiety. Because <laughs> you abstract, abstract, and abstract, and it's like, yeah. and it's just like all of a sudden you're in the void. And yeah. It's like, <laughs> yeah. It's like I don't know. I don't want to think about that anymore. <laughs> Something missing here. Hope you enjoy the show. Till next time.